The Going Viral podcast from HealthEd shares the latest information on COVID-19 from authoritative voices and leading experts. You can find all episodes at healthed.com.au or if you're a registered health professional, you can listen on the HealthEd app as well as access many educational resources to support your professional development and practice. HealthEd's face-to-face seminars are starting up again in 2022. And we hope that you will be able to join us for a day of high quality learning with a lineup of great speakers and important topics in women's and children's health. I'll be chairing a number of these events and I look forward to seeing you there. Register at healthed.com.au. Hello and welcome to Health Ads Going Viral. I am Dr. David Lim. It is Thursday, the 4th of August. Currently in Australia, there are more people hospitalised with COVID than at any time since the pandemic started. Here, the latest from COVID expert Dr. Gary Groman on this third wave of the disease, as well as ensuring that you are up to date on the recommendations for antivirals and therapeutics, vaccinations for children, and whether or not we should be reinstating mandatory face masks. Gary will also look to answer the question, is the current state of the pandemic going to get worse or better? Welcome to this presentation on COVID-19, and I'd like to thank the organizers for the invitation to give this update. My name is Gary Groman and I'm a consultant virologist. I'm currently involved with the Immunisation Coalition and I have a number of other interests in vaccine projects and I'm an adjunct at the University of Sydney. These are non-remunerated positions. For my remunerated positions under the line, I'm a consultant for the World Health Organisation with the Immunisation Vaccines and Biologicals Group who look after SAGE. tend to consult on SAGE matters, particularly with influenza, but also COVID-19, and I'm a consultant or advisor to various other groups. I've also got experience with the Therapeutic Goods Administration, some 17 years there, and six or seven years at WHO working for them directly. Prior to that, I had a research career at several universities, uh, the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta, and at Westmead Hospital. Today I'd like to cover, as best I can, a number of topics from epidemiology, virology, pathology, antiviral drugs and other drugs, testing, uh, the development of vaccines, and I'll also offer some concluding remarks. Let's begin with a global snapshot from the World Health Organization. So at the moment we have 568 million confirmed cases at least, and I'm sure the number is much higher than that, and over 6 million deaths around the world. And we've also got 11 billion doses of vaccine distributed. The Australian situation shows that we have 9.2 million cases and over 11 million, uh, sorry, 11,000 deaths. The seven-day average at the moment is some 46,000 cases per day. In terms of deaths for Australia, we see rather starkly that it's the over 60s in particular that are affected 
and mainly males, immunosenescence, waning immunity from vaccines and underlying conditions in the older groups tend to be major factors. If we look at cases and deaths around the world as a per capita, if we look at this heat map, we see that Australia is actually a hotspot. And this is in, in basically because we've lifted all our restrictions. Even though we have vaccines, the virus is spreading uh, remarkably quickly. And uh, we can be compared to very easily to the hotspots going on in the US, South America, Russia, most of Europe. Um, so, but when we look at deaths, we see that we have a very low death rate. If we have a UK snapshot on antibody studies, we see that most people, in fact, have been affected. So this, is, uh, this data is done in a combination of uh, fairly solid laboratory data plus modelling. And that shows that the percentage of the population with antibodies against SARS-CoV-2 or COVID above the 179 nanogram level and 800 nanogram per mil threshold is well over uh, 96, 7 percent. So every single age group uh, basically has come across COVID either through vaccination, perhaps predominantly, or the natural infection or reinfection or both vaccination and infection. Again, looking at data from England, we see here that in unvaccinated primary school pupils, unvaccinated pupils, over 80% have got antibody, again showing that the virus has spread quickly through natural infection. And if we look at vaccinated and unvaccinated secondary school pupils, we see that uh, nearly 100% uh, have in fact got antibodies. So they've come across the virus or they've had the vaccine or both. Genomics has been particularly important, if not critical, to our fight against COVID-19. And we see from this slide, uh, the teal color shows Omicron, and it's displaced the other ones on the left there, Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta, and many, many others that have come in the last two and a half years or so. And on the right-hand side of the slide, also in teal, we see that every single region is completely dominated by Omicron, well over 99%. Um, and there are some variants of interest, but generally there are sub-variants of interest now within the Omicron group. Gizad also shows us not only the phylogenetic and genetic divergence of this virus, but it also shows us how they transmit around the world. So it can be followed, seen there on the bottom left. And on the bottom right, we see all the various clades. So at the moment, we see the BA5 and 4 are dominating. There are some BA2s as well that are still uh, dominating the scene. And this slide shows uh, the current sub-lineages or sub-clades that are prevalent globally at greater than 5%. So we see BA5.1 uh, being the most predominant, then BA5.2.1, then 5.2, then 4.1, and BE1.1, which is really a BA or a sub-group of the BA5 clade. There's also been reference made to BA2.75 in various circles. Uh, this has been reported, certainly in more than a dozen countries, but so have many other clades. It's also been referred to unofficially as Centaurus. But um, this clade doesn't make the 5% threshold, which is something that virologists anyway do, do look at. Now, genomics has been instrumental for us to develop diagnostic strategies. 
and the diagnostic strategies we have are nucleic acid tests, rapid antigen tests, and the detection of antibodies. For nucleic acid RT-PCR tests, these are laboratory-based, they're highly specific, highly sensitive, there are point of care, and now, recently, self-tests, even home-use tests, uh, will also be available soon. For rapid antigen tests, uh, these are available in the lab, but also point of care and self-test for home use. Now, these are useful because they te detect the presence of viral proteins, but they only really work well in symptomatic individuals and within the first five to seven days from when symptoms appear. They can also produce false negative and false positive results to around about a level of 5%. Antibodies can also be detected now, but these are really laboratory tests, although there are some point-of-care tests also available. Now, the transmission and life cycle of uh, SARS-CoV-2 causing COVID-19. Here we have a simplified life cycle. The virus is transmitted via respiratory droplets of, infect, of infected cases. It can also be transmitted by the GI route through fecal oral spread, and it can also be ingested uh, through food or uh, hand to mouth. And from there, it generally goes to respiratory mucosal cells eventually. It may also replicate first in the GI tract. The virus possessing a single stranded RNA genome wrapped in a nuclear capsid and th with three major surface proteins, M, E, and the spike. Uh, this replicates and passes to the lower airways, potentially leading to severe pneumonia. The gateway to host cell entry is the magnified part on the slide, is via the spike converting enzyme 2, ACE2 interaction, with cleavage of the spike in the prefusion state by proteases like Tempris 2. The clinical course is typical of many viral infections in that virus is excreted in body fluids prior to symptoms. This is one reason why masks are so important to help prevent spread. In blue, we see the innate response. If that is weak or delayed, then severe disease tends to follow. After recovery there, some patients may have significant sequelae. Others may have poor neutralizing antibodies. In others, antibody may wane quickly, leading to reinfection, or some people get a post-COVID syndrome uh, which uh, is often called long-haul COVID or long COVID. Now, there are treatments at the bottom of the slides, and you see prophylactic antibodies and antivirals are, as expected, best used in the early part of the clinical course. And then immunomodulators and therapeutic antibodies can be used in mild to severe cases after three or four days. That's when they're most effective. Uh, rat tests are effective in the first part of the clinical course, usually within five to seven days, whereas PCR tests are far more sensitive and can be uh, used in the pre-symptomatic phase through to symptomatic. And generally, uh, virus can be picked up uh, for at least seven or eight days and often 14 days. So clinical symptoms are highly variable. Uh, there are many viral positive individuals that are asymptomatic or exhibit only mild symptoms. Most people have fever, uh, cough, fatigue, um, loss of taste and smell, loss of appetite, headaches, sore throat, myalgia. Some people report rigors, intestinal discomfort, and even ocular manifestations. Severe symptoms will lead to hospitalization. And there's also this unusual presentation in children similar to Kawasaki disease 
named MISC, multi-system inflammatory disease in children. It's a non-purulent conjunctivitis with polymorphic rash, mucosal changes and swollen extremities and a high proportion of hypertension. Some have multifocus, a multifocal pathogenesis, sometimes instigating destruction um, of blood vessel endothelial cells. Ultimately, um, at this point, it's really an endothelial uh, disease. It can lead to blood clot strokes, heart failure, heart attack, as well as potential kidney and neurological issues. There's also cytokine storm, of course. And then, interestingly, patients with pre-existing neuromuscular conditions uh, can also suffer a great deal from COVID in that they can be exacerbated, then autoimmune conditions can develop, GBS can develop, and there can also be virus reactivation of latent or chronic viral infections, such as the herpes group, including CMP, Epstein-Barr virus, herpes simplex, and others, the enterovirus group, and HTLV viruses, just to name the few. And I'll refer you to a rather brilliant review just come out in Frontiers of Neurology by Jacob et al., um, which is referenced there. COVID-19 can give long-term effects, which is called post-COVID-19 syndrome. It has other names, so they're listed there as well in the literature. Now, anyone who gets COVID-19 can have long-term effects, including people with no symptoms or mild illness. Returning or ongoing symptoms of more than four weeks is part of the definition of COVID-19 and the most commonly reported symptoms are fatigue and dizziness. These symptoms get worse upon physical or mental effort, sometimes recurrent fever and quite often difficulty breathing or shortness of breath and cough. More rarely we see neurological symptoms. We see joint and muscle pain, heart symptoms, digestive symptoms, blood clots, vascular issues, uh, rash, changes in menstrual cycle and again, reactivation of various viruses. Sometimes, particularly with the herpes group, you might see shingles, GBS, and Bell's palsy. For this reason, it's important that older people keep up their regular vaccinations and make sure that they are uh, vaccinated to shingles and influenza in particular, and also uh, pertussis. Continuing with this syndrome, organ damage can also ensue. Um, there can be some serious inflammation leading to various conditions, including diabetes, heart and nervous system conditions, and multi-system inflammatory syndromes. What are the risk factors? It seems to be more common in adults than in children and teens, in fact, quite rare in children and teens. And people who have had severe illness with COVID-19, especially if they've been hospitalized or have needed intensive care. The immunology landscape, um, if we start on the bottom right circle. Uh, disruption of the AC2 epithelium is the issue. It can lead, if we go up, to lymphoid organ failure uh, and, uh, sorry, to uh, lymphopenia. Uh, and, it, and it can also lead to dysfunctional IFN response, myeloid inflammation, and then lung issues. So this is the basic immunological landscape uh, for COVID-19. Another syndrome that we've seen is hepatitis in children. This is increasing over time, as you see in the graph on the left, and it's in every, oh, nearly every country in the world, or 42 countries at least so far, as we see on the right-hand side. So it's not just an isolated thing, it's a very common thing. The etiology of this is unknown. There are a number of clinical manifestations, uh, which I'll look at at the next slide, 
and WHO has issued a definition. It's acute hepatitis, not due to hepatitis A to E viruses, ALT greater than 500, IU per liter, age less than 16, and it's been happening since October 21. UK has some of the best clinical data. They show that 68% of children have jaundice, 57% vomiting, 42% pale stools, other GI symptoms, 36% fever, 28%, and respiratory symptoms, 18%. Originally, adenovirus type 41 was suspected. It's a common virus of children causing gastroenteritis, but this doesn't appear to be the case. It's not hepatitis A to E, cytomegalovirus, Epstein-Barr virus, herpes simplex or adenovirus. And now there's strong circumstantial evidence linking adeno-associated virus as the etiological agent in association with adenovirus and SARS. Now, AAVs are defective and can only replicate uh, in the presence of an adenovirus. So I think watch this space. It'll be interesting research and might be able to unravel what the etiology of this um, syndrome is. We have a number of treatments available, anticoagulants, corticosteroids, antivirals, antibodies, and oxygen. It's fair to point out that antimalarials and interferons have no benefit and are not recommended. Uh, statins possibly have some benefit. There's more evidence being gathered there. Micronutrients and vitamins have often been spoken about as being useful and there's a little bit of evidence uh, for those as well. <clears throat> the current treatments that are recommended, Evushield, pre-exposure prevention of COVID-19, Strotromivab, uh, used within the first five days of symptoms, Remdesivir, can be used in adults that are hospitalized with moderate to severe COVID. Then we have two oral treatments, Monupiravir and Plaxlovid. Uh, they can be used by adult patients in high-risk groups who don't require oxygen, um, but are at increased risk of hospitalization and death. Anticoagulants have shown to be very successfully seen in the line in uh, red that has markedly reduced number of days in hospital. And corticosteroids, although there's no real RCT study that's been done, all the various cohort studies and observational studies that have been done favor steroids. There are no uh, studies that don't favor steroids. Uh, and, and they've been very, very successful, but again, it is observational or cohort data. Uh, NIH, uh, and I think a general recommendation from WHO and in Australia as well, recommends against the use of dexamethasone for treatment of COVID-19 in patients who do not require supplemental oxygen. What about supplements, oh, sorry, what about statins? Um, there's been a recent review done on 15 studies on statin use, and it does appear to give a reduction with fairly significant p-values in 28 to 30 day all-cause mortality. But these are not RCT studies. They are good observational or cohort studies. But I think there's probably something in this area uh, that needs further research and an RCT, uh, proper RCT study large scale would solve um, the question. Supplements and micronutrients. People have looked at vitamin A, C, D, um, and melatonin, selenium, uh, N-acetylcysteine and zinc. These seem to be useful, but there are very few uh, RCT studies, of course, on these that really show any benefit. Where they're probably useful 
is when uh, vitamins and zinc, selenium and so on are deficient. They may help in recovery. However, there have been, there have been a number of RCT studies done with zinc supplementation in respiratory infections. These are not COVID-19, I stress to add. Uh, but there have been other respiratory issues, uh, a variety of them, bacterial and viral, and they do seem to have some effect. And these RCTs, um, I, I think, are credible, uh, and uh, it's well reviewed by Inga Vessels in Frontiers of Immunology. Vitamin D has been uh, spoken about a lot as well, uh, but again, it comes down to the same conclusion that it's patients with deficient vitamin D, they have an increased risk for COVID-19. And I, I think that's the only conclusion from all the studies that have been done on vitamin D. Vitamin D is not an answer to cure uh, COVID-19 in any way. I'll just go to some conclusions here. There is good evidence for steroids, especially dexamethasone and anticoagulants. There's some evidence for statin. Uh, there's interesting observational uh, data for some of the micronutrients listed there with some good RCT studies being done on zinc. And it's likely, in my view, that effective treatments will be available before we get a truly effective vaccine. So let's look at vaccines now. Now, normally, this is the traditional development pathway, uh, which, as you can see, is somewhere between a five and uh, ten year time span. And it involves a lot of moving parts that go step by step very carefully with regulatory input uh, at every uh, place. And uh, this wouldn't be possible during an emergency pandemic. So the FDA decided uh, to allow a contraction of the development process. Up the top, we have the normal development process, which might take five to 10 years. And they've sped that up for the pandemic. So it's all done basically within the same time of a phase one trial in that everything can be done concurrently. So the FDA allowed this and then this was followed by other regulators around the world and studies were done all over the world with various vaccines on this rather sped up process. So what the, what's the result? We've had an extraordinary uh, number of vaccines that have been developed. Over 200 candidates in development, 123 in clinical trials right now. We've got 33 authorised or approved. Um, very few approved, just 12, 21 um, that have been authorised. Um, and we've got 15 vaccines that have been abandoned. There have been an array of vaccines from inactivated or weakened or attenuated vaccine, which is what we normally would expect and use. Viral vector nucleic acid vaccines are new. We've never used these before as a platform in humans, except for COVID-19. Protein-based vaccines, particularly recombinant protein, we've seen before, and uh, they're also now coming to the fore. The viral vectored vaccines using an adenovirus vector in the case of AstraZeneca, for example, have been incredibly successful, as have the Pfizer-Moderna mRNA vaccine and the Novavax protein vaccine that's also available. So these are available in Australia, all registered by the TGA for uh, uh, emergency use, so to speak. They're not fully approved yet. That will take time once all the safety data comes in over some years. And we have AstraZeneca, viral vectored, uh, the age indication for 18 and up, Moderna six months and up, Novavax 12 and up, Pfizer 12 and up. 
And they all have a booster indication, although there's a little bit of doubt about Novavax. I think Novavax should be used as a booster myself uh, because heterologous vaccination um, or heterologous boosters is clearly the best. It gives a broader immune response uh, and certainly better immunogenicity. All vaccines um, have to go through large-scale clinical trials when they're novel, and that's a WHO directive. Hence, 30 to 40,000 people um, have been used in the phase three clinical trials. The reason for that is that it gives us a one in 10,000 chance of seeing a serious event. Unfortunately, the serious events to do with TTS and myocarditis uh, that we have seen could really only be seen if we had a look at 300,000 people, then we might be able to get a one in 100,000 chance. So side effects are rare, but side effects exist. And this is a snapshot of a TGA report of all side effects. You can see top left reporting rate only 2.2 per thousand doses, which is rather low. But this is just reports to the TGA. It won't be the whole snapshot of reports. And you see there are more reports as expected for the AstraZeneca and the mRNA vaccine from Pfizer. Spikevax, which is a Moderna one, has just come on board, as has the Novavax vaccine. So what have we seen as rare side effects? Myocarditis, uh, it's very rare. We've seen it in Pfizer and Spikevax. It's usually temporary, one to two or two to three per 100,000, depending on the vaccine. It's more common after the second dose. It's more common in males. And in 12 to 17-year-old boys, it is 21 cases per 100,000 for Spikevax, 13 per 100,000 for the, uh, for the um, Pfizer vaccine. In men under 30, it's eight cases per 100,000 for Pfizer, 19 per 100,000 for Spikevax. TTS is very rare, just two per 100,000, um, uh, but it is a serious side effect, but of course it can also be treated. This requires uh, good education and good observation uh, to keep it under control. So all these vaccines are available still in Australia. Now we are left with a number of critical questions. This is a global problem. It's not just a local problem. Until we solve COVID-19 all over the globe, we won't solve it in Australia. We've opened up Australia, so people are coming in all the time. And as we know, this is how the virus comes in and then spreads around from person to person, particularly if there are no restrictions at all. So COVID will infect and it will reinfect because the vaccines are not perfect in the sense they don't sterilize, but they do protect against hospitalization and deaths. We don't know what the next variant will be. At the moment, we're dealing with sub-variants. I believe we need an update. We need an update to BA5 and 4, and hopefully that'll come by September. There's an urgent need to transition to and maintain a steady state of low-level transmission if we are to keep COVID-19 under control. The more it spreads, the more likely there will be mutations and sub-variants, and ultimately variants, particularly in unvaccinated countries and in those with immunocompromised conditions. Will the virus mutate and force new vaccines to be made? Absolutely, yes. And I would hope it's updated at least twice a year. We still don't know the correlates of protection. Will vaccines prevent transmission? The answer is no. Are we left with an endless series of boosters? At the moment we are, particularly for the vulnerable, until better sterilizing vaccines come on board. At the moment, vaccines will not uh, protect against transmission or infection. 
will the community accept vaccines that might not be optimal? Well, we have, I think, and we haven't got any choice, and we need them particularly to protect the vulnerable. Will vaccines prevent severe disease and hospitalizations? Likely. Um, we see that ICU rates are not increasing with the current vaccines. Hospitalizations are in Australia, but in a way it's a numbers game. We've, let we've lifted up restrictions, so therefore cases and hospitalizations will increase. Fortunately, vaccines seem to be protecting against ICU admissions. Is the virus attenuating? I believe it will. Not everybody will agree with that in the world of virology and epidemiology, but I believe the virus is attenuating looking at the Gizade data, and it's natural for a virus to attenuate as it becomes adapted to humans. Roll out priority groups. We need to review this all the time. Yes, the people over 70 are a major group, but there are also many other groups as well that we need to look at from indigenous uh, to those that are disabled, to those with various diseases. We need to be constantly alert on the priority groups. Should masks return? I believe yes. It's only through with masks, basic hygiene practices, masks by masks, I mean masks in closed spaces, not all the time, but in taxis and buses and trains and planes and shopping centres perhaps. This is where they should return because the virus is spread by an asymptomatic fraction of the community as well as a mildly ill, a mildly Ill fraction of the community. We certainly need to be proactive, not just reactive. Uh, we need more information, more education, more surveillance, tests, vaccines, and in particular treatments. I think we, as I mentioned before, we will get better treatments, particularly if we put uh, our resources into the treatments before we get a uh, good vaccine. A multi-pronged approach is needed in my view, and it will be a combination of vaccines and drugs and sensible restrictions Masks are very much part of that in my view. We've saw the dramatic reductions in influenza, pertussis, many other respiratory viruses. When masks were used, sensible restrictions were put into place. There are many moving parts to a pandemic, many, 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 and we need proper oversight on all of these. I believe we need something like a CDC as they have in the US or a National Institutes of Health where it can be independent from government. Uh, and it can provide a unified public health approach for the whole of Australia, practical planning to control pandemics and also epidemics in the future. Well, that's uh, something for people to think about, and I hope it does come about, as I noticed several authors in the recent MJAs have called for. Finally, um, I want to speak about uh, pandemic threats to Australia. The current threats are influenza viruses always, Nipah virus, JE virus, chikungunya, other arboviruses at our doorstep, foot and mouth disease in cattle and pigs, a problem right now, and novel cholera strains. Monkeypox is currently the issue. It's been declared a disease of national significance. WHO has declared it at its highest level of alert, a public health emergency of international concern. We've seen 19,000 cases in 76 countries. Uh, 76 countries makes it a pandemic, including 18,000 of those have been in 70 countries that haven't historically reported monkeypox cases before. There are 44 cases in Australia. No deaths have been reported, but there is a risk of pneumonia and encephalitis. Outside of Africa, 
Almost all cases have been in men who have had sex with other men. So an education campaign is critical here, but also I believe uh, vaccines and antivirals should also be used and uh, offered to groups that are at risk, no matter where they are. I would expect this virus to spread uh, and spread throughout the community, uh, various communities fairly quickly and possibly get into the general population as well. So we need to be extremely careful with uh, this particular virus. Just like to thank you for listening and thank these various organisations for their data and allowing me to use the data. Uh, thank you for your attention. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.